all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today Medal of Honor recipient David Bellavia. David, uh, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this is an extraordinary story and a unique story you've, uh, that you've told it a couple of times. Uh, uh, there's a lot of media on this. But uh, D- David, uh, in 2004, was with a U.S. Army unit, uh, the Ramrods, and they were in they, they were on the you know pointy end of the spear at the the second battle of Fallujah. David's squad, uh, after three days of constant fighting, were, were uh, checking a, at night, checking a darkened house. I think it was the 10th house that uh, the squad had gone in to try to clear, and all hell broke loose. Um, some of that was actually captured on film because there was an embedded reporter. Ultimately, David, um, as the uh, staff sergeant decided something's got to be done to protect the guys here, and he went in single-handedly, cleared the house. Uh, I think there were four insurgents who were uh, killed and another that was severely wounded, um, but all of that action was done to, to get the fire that was raining down on his squad uh, dealt with, and as the NCO Kind of, it was his call. He couldn't send anybody else in. This was something he had to do, um, and that's to some extent what they expected of uh, Sergeant Bell, as he was affectionately known as. David, you've had a chance to recount this story a number of times, but before we get there, give give us a little about why you joined the army to begin with. So my grandfather, who I'm blessed to still have my life, is 102. Wow. And, uh, he, yeah, he's a Normandy vet uh, in uh, Sicily, North Africa, and the Normandy campaign. He got D-Day plus 30, so he came in with the Patton boys. Um, but he got the hedgerows. And so as a young kid, I would listen to these stories of my grandfather. And I just got this. He never glorified combat. It wasn't a situation where he was telling me, 
that this is, you know, something that is cool or combat is great. But it was a sense of this generational nobility that each American is asked to do. And if you can get through it, if you can experience it, your life has a completely different meaning. Family, peace, tranquility, it's never going to mean as much unless you go through the crucible of war. And so in the back of my head growing up, I just thought to myself, well, eventually I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to get drafted or the army is going to reach out and touch me. I, I wasn't, you know, the cycle of life took over, but I, I, I finally got to a point where my parents, I was home in college and we had a home invasion and these two drug addicts came into the house and terrorized my my family and they were, you know, armed and they were stealing and robbing. And I had a shot, you know, to defend my family, to defend, you know, as, as a, as a grown, you know, as a college kid and I, I didn't do it. And so I realized thinking back, well, you know, the army's not going to reach out to get me. I gotta, I gotta grow up and I've got to learn some lessons. And there was no war going on late nineties. Uh, peacekeeping in Bosnia and Kosovo that was the big mission so I signed up to become an infantryman and you know that's uh, that's what I felt my family business was you, it was you, our legacy well to some extent you wanted to see if you measured up I really you know I didn't you're absolutely right I didn't understand that until you know there's a lot of, you, you, you go through you know you go through the army in your youth and you don't really know what the world is like. And then you leave and you realize that ultimately in my life, that ultimately is the ultimate challenge of an adult is, am I leaving my uniform in a better place than I got it? Am I making my community better? Am I making my organization better? Do I measure, am I needed? When we look at all the problems veterans go through when we get out, addiction, suicide, depression, it's all about whether or not they're needed. Do we have a purpose? Do we have validation? Is, 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 is there someone out there that wants me as an integral part of a community and a team? And, and it's so hard to replace that fidelity, you know, as a civilian. And, and being needed in a fight, being needed in a group is such an incredible experience that you, you chase that dragon for the rest of your life. In fact, in uh, David's most recent book, Remember the Ramrods, an Army Brotherhood in War and Peace, one of the lines I wrote down <laughs> when reading it was, quote, proving to yourself why you are needed in the fight. And I, and I thought that really struck a chord. It, and you mentioned your grandfather, but your your family, your dad was not in the military, was he? No, my dad, my dad was a dentist. And there was a time before 9-11, you know, all my, I'm the youngest of four, grew up in Buffalo, um, and, and everyone in my family, education, professional degrees, masters, PhDs, this was the lane you went to show that, you know, you were going to carry on the family tradition. No one went into dentistry, but my dad was eagerly hoping his last youngest son would do that. And so my dad was fixated on taking people out of discomfort, getting people out of pain, coming up with resolutions to conflict, you know, intellectually talking, discussing, 
you know, having discourse. And so he saw this move to the military as almost like it's a rebellion. Like, he, you know, why do you want to break things? Why do you want, why do you want to train? Why do you want to fight? And it wasn't really until 9-11 when I think the country and most family members of people that were in the military at the time and veterans, I mean, even other, most the Vietnam veterans I talk to, I get all my wisdom from the Vietnam generation. They've been through everything we've been through. They had families, they had jobs. We don't need to look at a magic eight ball when we look at our future. We look at the Vietnam generation and think, look at the way these men and women have conducted themselves. This is our future. They're, they're wonderful examples of that. But when I talk to those Vietnam vets, many of them didn't even get appreciated until 9-11. 9-11 wasn't just a generational fight. 9-11 was a generational thank you to service, whether it was law enforcement, first responders, or Vietnam veterans and current members. So after 9-11 happened, all of our families became like soccer moms. You know, like they were so proud that we chose this, that the war was happening, but we made the, the decision to want to do this. And so that relationship with my dad and my service completely changed as it did for many sons and dads after September 11th. Oh, absolutely. And and you were a, sort of an interesting uh, enlisted in the army kind of guy. You were a non-drinker. You were a studier. You were a, you, you were a writer. Um, you had a young son that, that had had medical issues who you missed dearly you were a different kind of non-commissioned officer as i read this and as i understand it can you explain to our listeners who maybe don't understand what the role of an nco is to them yeah so, so the nco is the is the backbone of the of the military uh when we go to foreign countries and we try to rebuild, you know, armies. One of the things that Iraq and Afghanistan was was sorely missing was an NCO Corps, which is that connection between the officer and the enlisted soldier on the ground. And the NCO becomes almost a surrogate father. Uh, we conduct the training. We make sure that everyone is ready in their personal lives, in their professional lives. They're ready for the fight. They're ready for garrison. They're ready for life. This is our, you know, you, you've got the principal of a school who's your senior NCO and your, your uh, you know, command sergeant majors, your colonels. Uh, the teacher in the classroom is what the NCO is. We, we're with you all day. We want to make sure you're prepared and you're ready. And you take over that surrogate father role where you know, you're tucking them to bed, you're making sure they're eating, you're making sure that they're healthy and they're making good decisions. And for the longest part, I didn't really know what, I, you know, I would look at a subordinate that was young and earnest and physically fit and super smart. And for a long time, I saw that as a threat. I think most civilians will see someone coming up as a, you know, well, this guy's gonna take your job, he's better than you. And it didn't really dawn on me until combat that that's actually my purpose for living. As an NCO, I can only be judged by what my subordinates do better than me, that I have to be replaced. It's a necessity in our military that the, the current generation is more proficient and disciplined and professional than the previous generation. And so your job isn't to, to professionally goaltend 
the young kid coming up. Your job is to nurture it and break out that greatness inside of them. And well, once you realize that a leader is only judged by how their subordinates eclipse them, you start to understand the game and understand why we're here. And and then you you are a father. And because I had a little boy at home, that gestation was pretty natural. Well, and you talk about in uh, Remember the Ramrods, the role that you uh, ultimately recognized, which was you were to bring out the best soldier in everybody, and everybody's different, and you're to bring out the best warrior in everybody, and there's a different way to do that with folks, whether they're follow the book or they're total screw-ups, they're still a great soldier inside, and, and uh, that part uh, I also found very interesting as, as you wrote, but I want to, you, you were in the Army for six years, I believe, and yes. and you, your first book was House to House, and I, can you just talk a little bit about that, and then we'll roll into the current book, Remember the Ramrods. So, so House to House was a book, when I, so there was a, a generation of global war and terror veteran that came home in the first wave. And we were writing books basically because we felt that a lot of civilians didn't know what we were actually fighting. You had two wars simultaneously going on, Afghanistan and Iraq, and politics subsumes all of that. You've got good wars and bad wars. Iraq was the war of choice, the war that was based on bad intelligence. Afghanistan was avenging 9-11 and getting to the important parts of why we were at war as a generation. And so to me, I read so much of, you know, from remarks, you know, all quiet on the Western front to all the classics that came from World War II and Vietnam and uh, Caputo's rumor of war and Hackworth and officers and enlisted. And there really was no genre a book that talked about that small unit relationship in a deep dive as to what actually combat is like trying to make it realistic, but also trying to show that this is, we've got to be super cautious when we go to war. There's a, there's a cost in it. And I don't think at the time I wrote house to house in 2006, seven, that I, I understood that cost. I understood as, as the maturity and the, the distance it takes to look back, we change. And, and when we try to fight that change, combat transforms us permanently. And you can resist it, you can deny it, you can put it off and kick it down the road. Ultimately, it rears its ugly head in almost every aspect of life. It will rear its ugly head everywhere. So you can be a victim of the trauma or you can be empowered by the trauma. And so how do we conduct ourselves? Are we living for people that we lost? Are we sacrificing and and being a better individual because of people that we didn't bring home? Or are we going to be entombed by that and be a victim of that? And I think it takes sometimes 20 years for you to kind of look back and do an inventory and say, well, here are the mistakes I made. Here are the things that are working out. Yeah, absolutely. You know. And, yeah. and, and I want to point that out, that it was in November of 2004 when the second Battle of Fallujah is raging and, and you have to ultimately clear this house. That activity initially got you the award of the Silver Star, which was subsequently upgraded to the Medal of Honor in uh, uh, 2019. But you wrote House to House in 2007. 
So it's just three years after this in the time for reflection, the time to to maybe see all of the impacts of that trauma from war maybe hadn't all come to the surface yet, uh, David. You're absolutely right. And I think that's a, a lot. Well, the other thing, too, is that, you know, it was such a weird experience to I never knew that I was nominated for the Medal of Honor. It was the media that was telling everyone in 2004, five, six, that I was nominated for the Medal of Honor. So I didn't really, I, I thought it was gonna happen. It was just a matter of time. These are big investigations. Then I hear about this reporter who filmed the event and there's a tape out there. And now I'm thinking, well, what's on the tape? Maybe what was on the tape was so horrible that you know it didn't work out with my version. But the Medal of Honor is an award that they don't interview. They don't care what you think you saw or did. The only thing that can go in a Medal of Honor uh, award process is what other people witnessed. So if you engage two individuals, but no one saw it happen, it didn't happen. It's not in the citation. Absolutely. The only thing that's in the citation is the evidence of something that happened from two people, not one, but two. So you need two witnesses. So my biggest problem was that, you know, what had been witnessed was only on a tape with a foreign journalist. And, you know, I figured, well, this is just, it's never going to happen. It's not the end of the world. My, my award was coming home and being with my family. Amen. Um, Amen. Yeah. No, no. The the mere fact that this Australian journalist was embedded and was, and it's only got a few minutes of tape on this, but but it um, uh, helps demonstrate the chaos under which everybody is operating, and um, I think it's really helpful for the general public to understand this isn't a, the Medal of Honor isn't something you raise your hand and say I'd like to get, and I did really cool stuff. It's it's a whole yeah. It, so so the tape is twenty nine minutes long. The the a documentary that he made, Only the Dead, that went on HBO, and that's really the five six minutes that he put in that documentary. But it was apparent to me, and you know the army doesn't tell you anything about the process. It's very opaque. It's very cloak and dagger. You don't know who voted, who did what, who said. You're kept out of everything. But it's very apparent to me that that people saw the full tape and the questions that came from the army and the investigations that are done that that someone had access to that because they have information that no one really would have uh, uh, and it's yeah. certainly not from my book and it's not from me it's from what was on the tape so in a way it's a weird experience to know that the world is watching something that you thought didn't you know didn't you know they're watching the videotape of you and you didn't know it existed and then at the same time you realize well without that videotape my unit my friends myself none of us get the recognition without that videotape so it's that double-edged sword that you know we love michael Ware because of what he did and what he provided for our unit one of the things that another, uh, people I don't think understand, again, that this is not something you volunteer to be a Medal of Honor winner, uh, a recipient, and unfortunately most of them do it uh, and, and end up deceased as a result of their, their activity. But, you, um, but usually there's somebody promoting this on your behalf. 
was it the army was it uh, uh, somebody at the unit level was it uh, journalists how how did and i, I kind of refer to them as the medal of honor sherpas somebody helps carry this package through this ex- elaborate process and you might come out the other end of that process but somebody does a whole lot of work don't they they do uh and honestly, the question I get asked the most is, if you could do it all over again, would you do it? And my answer is no, 100% no. And I don't mean that because I don't love my guys. I don't love, you know, my army. This is way too much to put on one person, to, to, be, the only, to, to be the only living recipient of a war that had 4 million American men and women fighting in is, is not at all reasonable. It's unsustainable. There's there's way too many boxes that you could be put in. You get a lot of it's just not something I ever wanted for myself. Honestly, I wouldn't want it for someone else either. So it's not a fun process and it's not something you wake up every day and think, wow, this is so great. I'm going to coast through life. It's actually a, a, a burden that is more difficult than serving I'd rather have an apartment in Fallujah than wear this thing every single day because it's it's you just the expectations are are unrealistic of what you expect to see from a recipient. But you're absolutely right. There are always people, and again, these awards are the currency of combat, right? It, it, it's you can you can do things as a unit and as a leader, but unless you have a bronze star, a silver star, distinguished service cross, a medal of honor. Uh, presidential unit citation these are what encapsulates the moment when you were tested and so it's not just an individual that you're trying to put out there you're trying to put out there that all of your guys did special things if you're going to give this guy the medal of honor that bronze star you gave that kid maybe that's the distinguished service cross maybe that's a silver star look at what these young people did and, you know, and so mine was Doug Walter, who was my company commander. My other uh, commander was killed in Fallujah, and that was uh, Sean Sims. So knowing that Sean Sims, you know, before he died, acknowledged that this was something that was worthy of attention, knowing that, you know, journalists and other people were telling this story. Sometimes that story gets out of control and it's not really what happened, but it's a good story. And sometimes the army kind of wants to promote things that aren't exactly, you know, based in a hundred percent reality, but, but Walter, Doug Walter and Peter Smith and Peter Newell and my division, they all were like, Hey, you know, I know it's been 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but put this thing up against anything you're currently looking at. And I don't think until that videotape or documentary comes out there that I don't think people believed it, honestly. I mean, we, we get a lot of com- people tell stories and sometimes the fish is two inches long. And sometimes at the end of 10 years, that fish is a whale. We call know? that we call that false and, failure. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So 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 maybe people didn't believe it. It was too unbelievable. And I get it. But at the same time, I would rather people not believe the story than, you know, be the only guy on an island because. It's um, it just it's a lot. It's a lot to to kind of every time Iraq is in the news or every time something happens in the war on terror, you know, what side are you on? Everyone is going to want a peace. The army wants a peace. Politicians want a peace. Everyone wants something out of 
the recipient, because if the recipient says the policy has failed, it gives it more credibility somehow, and it doesn't make sense. It's not real. The Vietnam guys had 80, you know, peers from different gener- different sides of the fight over, you know, 10 years. The if Afghanistan guys are 22 of them from all over, from 2002 and the SEALs and Army and Marines. And there needs to be more recipients from Iraq so that we can tell the entire story of what our generation did at, at war. Tell us why you wrote Remember the Ramrods. I was at a point where uh, I think for all of us, veterans in, in particular, we get to the point where we start hearing the guys that drop off the map. There are guys that take their own lives. There are guys that just want to be left. They want to put the war behind them. And we kind of forget that we're NCOs and we're soldiers forever. And I just wanted to put this whole, I was at a point in my life where no one brought up the army ever. I had established myself in a career. Nobody cared that I was a veteran. I wasn't low crawling to the copier. I wasn't, you know, getting a short haircut. I wasn't bringing attention to service. It was just, this is who I am and this is what I do. And when this, all this attention came my way, I thought, you know, I went through it with these guys. What is it that we're all missing? For years, I thought that I missed the war. I thought war was what I needed in my life to feel complete and whole. And it dawned on me going through this process that the war isn't what I miss at all. I miss the people. I miss the men. I miss the relationships. I miss, I miss the sense of purpose and obligation and duty. And I can have that again without going to war. I can have those relationships again. Why, what am I afraid of? Why not make this award about all of us? Why not get back to what we were and if they're open to it and they were and the vast majority of these guys were like i miss you and i can say things to you at 40 i couldn't say at 20 we don't say we love each other when we're 20 we're too tough but at 40 you can say you love another man i I miss you and i love you give me a hug and that's where we're at in middle age is we're able to tell each other how we feel we miss each other we want each other to be back and it was such a healing cathartic experience and I thought to myself, you know, all these books that people write as veterans, what, this, is, this, is, this is a good news story. We don't have to be alone. We don't have to go through these things alone. You're still an NCO. Go out there and be with your soldiers. Lead your soldiers again. Bring them together. Call them up. Have them in your life. And if they're struggling, help them back up just like you did, you know, 20 years ago. There, so there's really the message there there is really the message david that i got out of the book and why the book is subtitled an army brotherhood in war and peace that's the message i think is powerful in remember the ramrods is if you, if you were in service and you had those connections or you were the nco or you were the the commander get off the couch and reconnect with these guys it's gonna be fantastic in your reunion if you will was kind of around the medal of medal of honor ceremony which is obviously extremely unique but talk about how those 40 men came back together and and began maybe maybe began healing but certainly added to the healing that had been going on 
Well, first of all, when you reach out, we're all different. We are different socioeconomic backgrounds. We cancel each other's vote. We root for the different teams on Sunday. You know, we are a cross section of America. And yet we seem to get along. We seem to be able to work together. We disagree. We're passionate, but we love each other and we respect each other. And so I thought my entire destiny on this planet was to lead men in war, lead men across an objective. And when time goes by, you realize, well, your destiny is to be in someone's life, to impact their life. And, and they have such a huge, profound impact on my growth, on my matriculation to civilian life, on how, what kind of a father I am, what kind of a man I am. I, I would not be the person I am if it wasn't for the army and it wasn't for the soldiers I served with. And it's tough to be getting a phone call out of 15 years later and saying, do you want to come to Washington and celebrate an individual? Do you want to all the stuff that you want to put in a box, you threw it in your barn, you close the door, you put it in a time capsule. Do you want to unleash all of that and celebrate one guy? And if that's the way it was sold to them, I'm not sure I would want to do it. So we had to make this about us. This is not an individual award. It's a unit award. And I'm not just going to stand up there and you're going to clap. You're going to come on the stage with me. You're going to meet the president with me. You're going to be a part of everything I do. I'm going to have 40 guys and girls that I serve with and the parents of the fallen and the children of the fallen. And we're all going to do this as one big group. And that's how we, that was a promise I made when I brought them out there. And that's what we ended up doing. And it was such an amazing healing experience. They trusted me. Uh, and we're back in each other's lives now. And it's beautiful. Well, this, your, your book uh, portrays a lot about the backside of the Medal of Honor ceremony, which we in the general public get to see. Maybe a little news clip. Maybe we'll watch it longer on YouTube. But you really uh, peel it back and say how you were feeling, what you were seeing, what you were doing. I want to comment on a couple of these things, that uh, nuggets that you revealed, and maybe you want to comment on a couple of more. Um, President Trump, uh, who uh, awarded this in June of 2019, before he signed the citation, asked you, do you want me to do this? What was your response? I don't know. I, 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 I didn't want anything to do with this. I, I've said no so many times that they had to break out. They had to break out my, my enlistment contract. And the enlistment contract is specific about the inactive ready reserve. How, the, the types of things <laughs> right, the army right, can they do. They can call you back. back. Yep, yep. And it's small print. It's the recipient of the Medal of Honor. You can't say no. <laughs> and so I was, yeah, I, I didn't want it. I, I, everything, I knew everything was going to change. And I didn't, I, I was comfortable. I was comfortable in my little, my, I, I loved my life. And it was, it was void of that time. David's got, David's got these three kids. He's uh, successful in the radio business. Uh, you know, he's a, he's what they call talent. I'm not. He is. Um, yeah, you didn't need this. And I thought it was funny that you reported out, uh, hey, I told him no, but, uh, you know, yeah, he did it anyway. There was another surprise uh, that uh, the White House or the Army did. Um, 
to uh, because the guests at the medal of ceremony are medal of honor ceremony are all special folks and one of them for you was uh goes all the way back to what when you signed up tell us a little bit about that so the whole time the army's prepping this big surprise um and i'm thinking it's got to be a dodge ram it's got to be like a brand new car yeah ramrod right, right. remember the ramrods you got to get a dodge ram out of this right there's got to be something <laughs> like you're giving eve every medal of honor gets like a box of money or like a jewel that was found in saddam's you know palace something that is like they're building this up and and at, and at some point you're like oh i don't care i don't need anything i just want to you know get back to normal but they're building up so much that you know it creeps into your thoughts at 2 a.m you become like an eight-year-old thinking you know is this going to be a lifetime pass to disney world is this going to be am i going to get to you know uh, try out for the buffalo bills as a backup quarterback like what is what is this surprise and so they build it up they have to announce at the white house and finally right before you're about to be introduced to the world on live television. They bring out my recruiter. And it wasn't that I, I love the guy. He's a wonderful human being, but talk about an anticlimactic, you know, I mean, for <laughs> the love of God. It, it, I mean, it really, it really pointed out though, the, the arc of the career, right? I mean, it, it, here's the beginning and the arc goes all the way through the 40 guests or more that you have there. Um, uh, your your troops, your men, um, and and brings you all the way to this ceremony. So it was an interesting arc that somebody said, "Hey, we ought to we ought to track that down if we can." Uh, another- it was an incredible. They put a tremendous amount of research. They found the guy. He's a wonderful man. I'm just saying, I'm a grown man. Just tell me, I found your recruiter. <laughs> Don't build this up where the president of the United States is like, "We got a big surprise for you." What is that big surprise, sir? It's your recruiter, you know, maybe a little bit of a, of a Debbie Downer at that. But he was a wonderful guy, and it did. It showed this guy put me in the Army, gave me this opportunity, gave me a, an incredible trajectory. I learned so much. I love Sergeant Reyna, and I love the Army, so I appreciate him. Well, one, one of the other things, again, we in the public see this, uh, you know, there's a row of generals always and secretaries of defense or Army or whoever. Um, uh, in your instance, uh, as I said, you had a lot of the, the ramrods. Maybe I think it was 40 guys and family members, your family members. You have this this big, you know, audience of 300 looking at you um but uh your your boys kind of took it to a new level didn't they uh they were enthusiastic why don't you tell everybody about that there's a the famous story of andrew jackson opening up the white house on inauguration day and a bunch of hillbillies just like poured into the white house and started you know drinking alcohol and stomping on furniture with their boots these ramrods i love these men these guys are tough they are you don't want to mess with the first infantry division in a fight they're salt of the earth the fabric of america from all city rural suburban all walks of life all demographics ethnicities sexualities we got them all they're beautiful beautiful men but my god they turned that that ceremony is very sterile and it's like this is all formal and i think i think the word i think the word the white house would say is solemn not sterile it's solemn (laughs) it's solemn it is a solemn ceremony 
and they turned it into a rally. They turned it into, it was like a promotion ceremony outside the barracks. Like I was, I was putting with, on with, another with alcohol, with alcohol served <laughs> with way too much alcohol served. And, and these guys were, and because you know that, you know, there's a cross section of our military. Uh, these guys are physically fit. They like their drink. They're rough guys. They're kind guys. They're wonderful people. But in the white house, they were back at the barracks and they were loud and they were getting into it and it turned everything sideways. And I thought general Milley and the chiefs of staff were going to lose their mind and they embraced it. They embraced it. And I, I was so grateful for that. Cause you know, when Milley gets upset, you know, those eyebrows, he gets angry <laughs> and, and he'll, he'll turn on you, you know, but he, he, uh, he gave us permission to, to, to be what we are. And uh, it was it was a cool experience. Well, and you report in the book, you write in Remember the Ramrods, that's, that um, unusual energy uh, played right into President Trump, who uh, seems to get himself energized when the crowd's energized. And this turned from a solemn occasion to really a celebration, which it should be anyway. Well, that's what you try. Trump was like in front of, he was like at a rally. And once he started feeding off the crowd and the crowd was laughing, he's walking to the crowd, he's high-fiving people. He's, you know, I mean, it, he literally took it to a whole new level, but the, but my guys responded to it. And it was just, it's, it's a, it's such a, you, you forget that it's on TV and you forget that everyone's watching it. Uh, but as the citations being read, I'm looking at these guys' faces, and, and the one thing I wasn't expecting is that and I kind of forced them to go back in time, and not a lot of these guys necessarily wanted to. They wanted to be with each other. That We wanted to be a unit again. We wanted that camaraderie, but we didn't necessarily all – we weren't all prepared to go back to war. And I started to see that on a stage in front of millions of people. I started to see – that these guys are all going back with me. And, and the willingness to do that for me was one of the most selfless acts right back to the war. These guys risked their lives for me, and now they're willing to put themselves back at a horrible time just to be there with me. It, it meant the world to me. It touched my heart, and it made me appreciate the ramrods more than ever. As I said, this ceremony is very solemn. Normally, the generals are there, the secretaries are there. In your instance, there were seven living Medal of Honor attendees, which is really unusual. Uh, high praise. Uh, this is an elite group of men who've done extraordinary things of valor. But um, I have talked to uh, Medal of Honor recipients uh, in the past who who reveal that you know maybe I was a little drunk during the ceremony. I was so nervous. I had to I had to have uh, maybe more than I should have. Um, you have a similar story to calm your nerves. You uh, you took a little dip. Tell us about tell us about that. Yeah. So, so I'm not a drinker, and I've never been one of those guys. But and when you are going back into a wormhole. You know, I was a big cigarette and tobacco user when I was in the war, and obviously I quit, and I didn't need that anymore. But when I put the uniform back on, I felt like the uniform wasn't complete without the without the tobacco. I needed to get back into that. That was who I was back then. I needed to get back into character. So one of my friends, uh, Fitz and Nap, they gave me uh, some Copenhagen, and I, I just threw a chaw in, 
And I, it's like, wow, this is, I miss this. This is incredible. And before I know it, the president's like, let's go. And I'm like, sir, I've got a giant wad of tobacco in my mouth. And he's like, you, you're not going to go out there with tobacco in your mouth. I'm like, well, what, what are my options here, Mr. President? I don't know what to do. He's like, if you don't spit on my carpet. And I'm like, I'm not going <laughs> to spit on your carpet, I promise you. But all the photos of that ceremony, all these people came up to me and still do and say, like, I looked at your face and you look so emotional. You look so stressed. You look so like you were in a tough spot. I said, you know, honestly, I was just thinking, don't swallow this juice because you're going to vomit <laughs> on national TV. Yeah. I had so much juice in my mouth that I didn't know what to do with it. So I just kind of like slowly started to swallow a little bit at a time to get through it. But I just, I, it was horrible. It was the worst. I never should have done it and don't do tobacco products. Well, there's a lot of vets who get a big laugh out of that because they can re- relate to having the, the chew at the wrong period of time and not having an outlet. I want to be serious as we finish here, uh, and we're talking to David Bellavia, um, uh, U.S. Army veteran, recipient of the Medal of Honor for his actions in the Second Battle of Fallujah in uh, November of uh, 20. 20- 2004 um, having received the award now in, in, in 2019 the Medal of Honor award you've you've worn it for three years or so now um, can you talk to us a little bit about the responsibility you feel as a Medal of Honor recipient and maybe the weight that goes with being such a recipient it's it's heavy. I I didn't know most of these guys are young when they get the award, and and so the, the whole world is their oyster, and everyone's going to go out and make different choices. I wanted to be the guy that went back in the army, so I, I even though I was forty and old, I went and said, "Use me." I don't I don't know what to do with this thing. I don't want to go to Hollywood and be an action star. I don't want to take this and build i want to just i want to put more people in the army so would you and they were like well no one has ever offered us that like we'll take you and i'm like great so i went from the medal of honor stage in washington dc to basically two and a half years all through covid just recruiting as many people as i possibly could going from towns that have never seen a, a recipient or the award to talking to parents talking to kids about re-enlisting, going to ROC, ROTC graduations, and just literally 27 days a month on the road, not, you know, signing autographs and, you know, making speeches, but just talking to young people about this choice, this choice to serve and how important it is and how we're needed more than ever with all the threats that are in the world. And that was an incredible experience. And that was, it meant so much to me to be back in, I'm a soldier again, you know? And, and, and it was like so much time had gone by, but yet it was like, it was yesterday. And, uh, you know, but I, I did that, I loved it. And then I got out of that and I kind of went back to, now this is real, this is happening now. What, what do you do with it? And the key is that you just try to remind people that, you know, our country is worth any sacrifice. 
And this award doesn't represent me or my actions. It represents generations of blood, generations of sacrifice. You know, to get the Medal of Honor, it has to be witnessed. How many people in a trench line in World War I did something that nobody saw? How many people in Korea did something that nobody saw? That sacrifice is there. It's with us. We have to acknowledge it and genuflect to those generations, but at the same time be reminded that this next group is going to be as lethal, as professional, and as disciplined as any previous generation. And these young kids, we could, we could pile on the young generation and how irresponsible and they don't make their beds, but they are lethal and they are professional and they are decent, good men and women, and they are ready to do whatever this country asks them to do. And that is the new mission. Yep. And I'm proudly taking that mission on. Well, I, uh, again, uh, we're talking to David Bellavia, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, still a very young man uh, who's going to carry this weight uh, throughout his life and continue to hopefully demonstrate to people the value of service, the value of service above self and uh, encourage those next generations. Uh, it's a great honor talking to you, David. Uh, your current book, Remember the Ramrods, an Army Brotherhood in War and Peace is much more reflective uh, than House to House, his earlier book. And I think these, uh, for, for those who want to get a better insight, they're, they're both uh, great, great reads. David, thanks for taking some time today with Veterans Radio. Hey, thank you for doing this program for as long as you have and doing it in the way you do it. You're giving voice to so many people. Uh, God bless you and much respect. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or LegalHelpForVeterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to VeteransRadio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time, you are dismissed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.